We are going to continue to exalt in God and in this life he has given us by going to his word and exalting in the words of scripture and the truth that they teach us. So we are in Ecclesiastes and our text today is going to be verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the seats. Why don't you grab that and use that? Don't just read it on the screen or you're welcome to, but um, it's it's nice to have it in your hand. If you need a Bible, you can take that with you uh, as our gift to you. All right, so here is the word of God. Ecclesiastes 1.1 says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where streams flow, they, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to come, yet to be among those who come after. Let's pray again. Father, you know my frame. You know I am but dust. And we are that. And yet you love us and have shown us great mercy and compassion through Jesus Christ. I pray that we would be attuned to that grace today. That you would stir up in our hearts faith in Christ. Hope in this life that is but vanity. I pray that you would help me to handle your word well in a way that edifies your people. I pray that your people, this church, we would be edified in the truth of the gospel this morning and the hope that we have in Christ. And I pray that you would bring whatever correction you need to bring to our worldview and our perspective that often gets skewed, often born skewed. Would you invade to change that for us? And Lord, I pray for all who are here today who don't know the gospel the way that saves, like knows, trusts in Jesus Christ alone. I pray that you through your grace would work in their hearts, that they'd be listening to what you have to say from your word, that they would be convicted of their sin, that they would see the wonders of Christ, that they would see the hope of Jesus today and trust in Christ alone. And Lord, I pray that you would encourage Christians to go out into this world to leave here with their eyes firmly fixed on what is eternal and not what is transient. Thank you for your church, the body of Christ that gathers. 
to worship the name of Christ and to edify and encourage one another. What a gift. It is the dearest place on earth to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So in January, a few weeks before my 49th birthday, I lightheartedly posted on social media that I was about to begin my midlife crisis and I was in need of some ideas, like how to do that well. I posted it then. I was going to use it as a sermon illustration. I don't think I ever did use it as a sermon illustration, so I just sat there waiting to be used today. I did get a lot of helpful ideas, though. A lot of people posted some ideas. Uh, I, did, I even got the classic, you know, the classic go buy a red sports car uh, thing, the, the treatment that we think of when we think of midlife treatment uh, crisis. Of course, now I suppose I will have to live almost 100 years old if this is truly my midlife crisis, but whatever. Let's think for a moment about the anatomy of a midlife crisis. The uber-reliable informational source Wikipedia defines a midlife crisis as a transition of identity and self-confidence that can occur in middle-aged individuals, typically 40 to 60 years old, It is brought on by the events that highlight a person's growing age, inevitable mortality, and his sense of lack of uh, of accomplishment. Sounds about right. For what it's worth, I do think we come to a place in our lives where we begin to look back and see the brevity, like the quickness of it. We look forward and see that too. Doesn't seem like there's all that much time left. And we can begin to wonder about our accomplishments and then ask the questions about purpose and meaning and value and the direction of our lives. I think young people tend to look ahead and see an infinite amount of time. You know what I mean? Young people don't typically have the same kind of turmoil about life's meaning. But then life begins to scream by, by the 20s and 30s. 30s gives way to the big... Four zero, and then 50s approaching. And I'm maybe being a little autobiographical here, but if you're 50 or older, I bet you can relate. Every old person I have ever talked to about life has mentioned the brevity of it. Ask any couple in their golden anniversary, like when they get to that golden anniversary and ask them to share about their thoughts about their journey, like how it's gone. And they will almost always say it went quickly, right? My favorite such comment was from a witty guy in his, on his 50th anniversary. He was in Florida. He confided in me. I asked him how it went for him. And he said, these 50 years with this amazing woman have been like a mere five minutes. Then he paused. And then he said, Underwater. (laughs) He was joking, of course, but I bet it felt fast. I bet it felt fast. My point is that people who have lived life begin to sense the brevity of it. And that leaves us wondering, what is this all about? What is going to be different about this world when I'm gone? What mark did I leave? What meaning is there to my toil, to my life's work? And bigger than that, what's the meaning to anyone's life's work? What's the meaning of life given how quickly we're here and how small of a scratch we make on the earth's surface? What is it all about? If you've asked such questions, let me encourage you that you are in really good company. 
For Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, asked the same question. There's a lot of debate about who the preacher in Ecclesiastes is. I don't, I don't mind just calling him the preacher, if that's what we want to call it, but I'm almost certain that the author is Solomon. I don't find any of the arguments, lots of arguments about who the author is. I don't find any of the arguments against the authorship of Solomon compelling. He is the son of David. He is the king in Jerusalem. He has wealth. He has wives. He has wisdom. It seems to me to be Solomon. The preacher is asking an important question that we often find ourselves asking, and that is, what is the meaning of life? Or as you can see in verse 3, His question is, what does man gain by all the toil which he toils under the sun? Today we're launching a new sermon series that I think, Lord willing, will go through May, June, and July. It is the book of Ecclesiastes. Every commentary that you pick up, if you buy one for this and you pick it up, start reading it, it's going to begin with something like, Ecclesiastes is a difficult book. And I think that's true. There are some perplexities here and we'll try to get at them this morning. Even so, I think you will find this. I know that I will. I think we will find this immensely helpful. This perplexing book, I believe, helps us to make sense of our perplexing lives and this perplexing world in which we live. And I think it'll be helpful even this morning. I think we'll find this immensely helpful. This is meant, I think, as a gift from God, the book of Ecclesiastes, like the rest of the scriptures. It's a gift from God meant so that we might not waste our lives. We might not miss life's grand purpose and thereby waste our lives investing all of our time and energy and affection in what is a mere breath and then dying and being forgotten. I think this study is going to be really good for our church. It will help us to laser in on our purpose as a church in this moment that we have. And not to collectively make the mistake that so many individuals make and many churches make, wasting our collective lives together as a body of believers by setting our hearts and our minds and our hope on what is ultimately a vapor. May I suggest something to you as we do this this summer? Whether you are into your midlife crisis already or just kind of kicking the tires a bit, or maybe it's way off, or maybe it's midlife was a long time ago. I want to encourage you to press into this this summer with me for your good. Don't just come here on Sundays and hear my sermons or the sermons from the other guys who are going to preach on this. Let this inspired book leave its mark on you and us on our church. Buy some, buy, I'll put some commentaries on the Ridgeview Facebook tomorrow. Buy one and read it. Read the text before we get into it. Set your heart to understand this question and the answer that it provides. If you're young, perhaps the Lord will use the, the worldview correction of Ecclesiastes to help you not waste your life. If you're old, maybe the Lord will be kind in opening your eyes to what is truly significant so that you might live the remaining years that you have well with your confidence and your hope in Jesus. And if you're somewhere in between, this might help you to not buy that red sports car that you don't really want, but instead invest in what lasts forever. 
May the Lord use this summer to sharpen our focus and our vision and bedrock our ambition and our hope and our faith in the one who is truly significant in this life. Okay, so look at the question in verse three. That verse says, what does man gain by all the toil which he toils under the sun? That is, I believe, the main question of Ecclesiastes. And the one, as we will see, that Ecclesiastes helpfully answers. And this is good because I know that some of you are asking that question too. Some of you have asked me this question almost verbatim about your work. What's the point of it all? A rancher finds out that his his children don't want a ranch and he begins to wonder what's the point of his work, all this toil. Since he was thinking all this time, he's doing it for them and now they don't want to do it. Now what? Or a couple whose kids age out of the household begin wondering, what are they doing all this for? It's a common question and we ask it all the time. So let's let Ecclesiastes answer it for us. Before we do, we should note two things. First, is that the questions of Ecclesiastes, this one and all the others that it asks, have to do with life under the sun. That's the term the preacher prefers, and I think it refers to all of life in this fallen world. That is, life under the sun is life lived east of Eden, this side of the Garden of Eden, this side of the fall of man. That all of us, every human being, Christian, unbeliever, pagan, secularist, hardened, unbeliever, devout, Christian, all of us live under the sun. That's our collective reality. This is the life we live. And we will come back to that point many times this summer. He is talking about life in this fallen world. That's the context of the question. Second, second thing to note, It is a question which the preacher seems to have answered before he posed it. And he did so with what amounts to one of the key words and the key phrases in the book of Ecclesiastes. Look at verse two. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I think everything about how we understand Ecclesiastes hinges on how we understand that word, vanity. The word vanity is not a terrible translation, but because of what we normally think of it in English, I don't know that it captures the, the essence of the Hebrew word very well for us. There's a reason why the ESV goes with this translation. I, I think it has more to do with the precedent of English translation than it does linguistics. Uh, the watershed Latin translation of the Bible, Jerome's Vulgate, translated the word vanitas. And the King James followed suit, making famous the English phrase, vanity of vanities. And I think the other translations that go with that are influenced mostly by that history. You with me? Vanity is better than some of the alternatives. The NIV uses the word meaninglessness or meaningless. And I don't think that's a great word for this. Uh, And then the other words like futility, emptiness, pointlessness, all of those are used in some English translations. I don't think they help us to understand the concept at all. The word kabel in Hebrew literally means breath or whisper or wisp of air or vapor or something like that. Not whisper, but wisp of air. It's used in Ecclesiastes metaphorically, obviously, but I think understanding that literal meaning is extremely helpful to understanding the book. 
I don't think the preacher means that everything is pointless. And I don't think that that would be, I don't think that's the main idea of Ecclesiastes. A lot of people do. A lot of people, I think, read this wrongly. They, they think everything is pointless until the last chapter. And then we see the answer. There's the correction at the end. And I don't think that's the right way to see Ecclesiastes. And I don't think that would be a very helpful message anyway. Maybe even self-defeating, right? If everything is pointless, everything under the sun, if everything is pointless under the sun, is this argument pointless? Like is Ecclesiastes, which was written under the sun, pointless, meaningless? Of course it's not. And I, I think this is why Ecclesiastes is misunderstood. If pointless is his meaning, then we're left with the impossible and unenviable task of understanding the point of the pointlessness. Yet what the preacher is saying is not that all of life is pointless, but that all of life is a mere breath or a wisp of smoke or a vapor. I think his phrase, vanity of vanities, helps us to see the limits of the significance of everything under the sun. It is a vapor of vapors. Several years ago, a friend left a smoke machine on my porch as a gift. It was a joke. Uh, we had joked about whether we should use a smoke machine during our worship gatherings, like some churches do. Many were doing it in that day, some still do today. They do it to build atmosphere. You know, the worship's going on, lights off, lasers, smoke, reflects light, kind of adds an emotive punch to the service. Of course, I had no, no serious intention of using a smoke machine or a laser or dropping gold glitter or feathers from vents. I don't think it's helpful to artificially stir emotions during worship. I mean, we do want emotions stirred, right? We want them stirred, but we want them stirred by substantial realities like, like God and his goodness and his grace and his sovereignty and his word not mere smoke. And I'm not being critical of churches that use smoke machines. Well, yeah, maybe a little. (laughs) But we weren't going to use it in the service. It was a funny joke. Get this smoke machine on my porch one day. Even so, a smoke machine is a really cool gadget. You know what I mean? So the first thing I did was plug it in, pour in the sauce, and fill my entire house with thick smoke. Did you know that smoke from a smoke machine will actually set off every smoke detector in your house? I didn't know that, but it will. And make the entire house not, you can't, I mean, you're wondering, is this healthy? (laughs) You know, as you're trying to breathe it. I know it's supposed to be healthier than like smoke from a fire, but yeah, I don't know. The effect on my house while that smoke lasted was real. It was substantial. It filled my house. It billowed out my windows. My neighbors were concerned. It captured our attention. It made my wife wonder why some boys don't grow up that quickly. (laughs) In the moment, the smoke was genuinely significant. However, and here's the point of connection, it had an extremely limited scope of significance within the day or the month or the history of my house or the history of Shadron or the significance of the Johnson household, and certainly of the world. Today, you cannot tell that my house in 2015 was filled with smoke. And I wonder if my children even remember that day. 
It dissipated, and today the smoke's no more. Gone is every trace of it. I couldn't put it in my pocket. I couldn't put it in a display case or put it in a safety deposit box at the bank. I couldn't put it on my mantle so that people could see it. I couldn't somehow save it so that future generations would see the ingenuity and the value of smoke. I could not bequeath it to my children in my will. Although, (laughs) it simply was and was significant while it was and then it was not. Picture that in your minds. Smoke and a wisp of vapor. That is, I believe, what the preacher has in mind about all of the gain of man's toil under the sun. It is not meaningless, but, it is, but its significance is extremely limited by so many factors. And in that sense, it is vanity. So as we march through this, and you hear the word vanity, don't think pointless. Think breath. Think vapor. Think wisp of smoke. In this opening poem of the book, the opening salvo, I believe, the preacher puts front and center two teachers who teach us the reality of life being as a vapor, that our lives and our efforts are a mere breath. These two teachers are the rhythms of the created world and our experience and our memories. So rhythms and remembrances are our two teachers instructing us. Generations come and go, verse four. The sun rises, sets, and then rises again, verse five. Verse 6 says, the wind blows, the air settles, and then it blows again. Rivers run into the sea. Sea never fills up. Rivers never stop running. All of these rhythms teach us something about life. And it's a lesson that feels counterintuitive to us. You see, we naturally desire to leave a mark that lasts forever, right? In the heart of man. We want to invest all of our significance, ultimate significance, if you will, into this life and the work of our hands. But consider, friend, that the sun rose this morning and it's going to set tonight and it's going to raise again tomorrow morning and set tomorrow night. And it's going to do that whether you are lazy in that time or whether you work hard, whether you come up with some amazing scientific discovery or you twaddle your day away with call of duty, it's still going to rise tomorrow and set tomorrow night. That's reality. That's what it teaches us. The unstoppable rhythms of this world teach us something about the significance of our vapor-like moment on this earth as does our own experience. Look at verse eight. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. If I, if I preach a great sermon, like today, for example, use your imagination. If I preach a great sermon and I really knock the, the ball out of the park, as it were, people will probably tell me for days how great and impactful that sermon was. I, I, I will get the feeling likely, like my Monday morning blues won't be so blue. I'll get the, the feeling that this was really significant. And that's a satisfying feeling for a moment, for a moment. No matter how I preach today, two months from now, no one's going to be thinking about this sermon anymore. That's reality. Maybe next week. 
And 50 years from now, follow me, 50 years from now, I will likely be dead and that sermon will not probably be a thing that people remember. You tracking with me? In fact, you know what people will remember about me? Say 50 years from now or 100 years from now or 500 years from now? There's a very, very good chance that not only will they not remember the sermon that I preach today, but they will not remember me at all. I know. Now here's the thing. Here's the big paradox of Ecclesiastes. That does not mean that the sermon that I preach today is meaningless. I'm just using that as an example because that's my work. You can fill in the blank with your life. The, the herd you raise, the, the book you write, the students you taught, the, those kids you reared, the house you built. This does not mean that those things are insignificant. I don't think the preacher wants you to look at your work, the labor that God has given you to accomplish and think pointless. He makes the point in this book that it's from God. It's not pointless. This is the day the Lord has made. It's not pointless. But I think he wants you to feel the limits of its significance. In light of these rhythms, the generations, the wind, the rivers, the sea, the sunrises and sunsets, your own lack of lasting satisfaction in your work, these things do not carry ultimate significance. You're not pointless. You're not pointless. Your life's not pointless. Your work's not pointless. But it is a mere vapor. If you're not convinced yet, look with me at verses 9 and 10. The preacher says what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It's already been, it's been already in the ages before us. Surely if there is anything significant that we can like invest our significance in, it is in innovation, right? Something new. Yet the preacher seems to think that there is no real innovation. There is nothing new under the sun. That's not to say we don't do anything differently. Isn't social media something new? Kind of. But the reality is that man has always sought to network and communicate and figured out ways to do that. There are not new realities. Under the sun, this has always been the case. Social media is just a different way to go about the same thing. A different answer or kind of answer to the same question we've been asking from the beginning. Technology merely facilitates different ways to do the same old thing like communicate or travel or help one another or, or kill one another. Before we called it World War I, you know what people called it? The war to end all wars. It was something truly new. Horribly new, but new, right? That's what we thought. This is new. It's conflict on a global scale enabled by modern ways to do war. And people could not see anything more significant than that war, World War I. But listen, I mean, unless you are, if, unless you really like history, my guess is that you know very little about that war. 
and everyone who fought on all sides of it is dead today. And a few years later, after that war, the war to end all wars was trumped by a new war to end all wars, which later we called World War II. And it was enabled by airplanes and rockets and nuclear bombs and better weapons than the world had ever known until then. Was it significant? Was it new? I mean, never has the world seen such scale of death from conflict. Surely it's new. And we still remember this one because it wasn't that long ago, right? My grandfather fought in World War II and I knew my grandfather and my grandfather's little brother was killed in that war. But what significance will my grandchildren think about that war? Neither of those wars were really new. We have been killing one another under the sun since Cain killed Abel with a rock. It's just, we figure out different ways to go about it with more people involved and longer ranges involved. There's nothing new under the sun. It's all vapor. So in light of this overall reality that it's all a vapor, how should you view your work? How should you view your life and your efforts? And today, how should we view this moment of ours under the sun? That's the pressing question of Ecclesiastes that we're going to spend our summer, Lord willing, digging into. And the reason why it's such an important question to ask is because we do not want to invest ultimate significance in what ends up being a house of cards, right? You don't want to do that, I hope. I don't want to invest in smoke. It's not a good long-term investment. You can toil and spin your life away and make your mark on this world, and that might feel significant to you, and prod you on to give it your whole heart, right? I want to make my mark. I was talking to my wife about it. I said, don't we want to make our mark in this world? And she said, yeah, but then somebody's going to go and build a house on your mark. Then what? Then you will die and you will be forgotten. And then your kids will die and they will be forgotten. And life under the sun and everything in it, sun will still rise. It'll still set, it'll still go on. We have to see that it is a mere breath. Is there hope? Is there hope in that message? This truth that Ecclesiastes is going to press into us? Oh friend, there is, there is. And, and for that hope, I want you to consider the most famous verse in all of the Bible, John three sixteen. Everyone seems to know this verse. Everyone seems to have heard of it. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, listen, but have eternal life. Eternal is not a mere breath. It's not vanity, it's not vapor, it's not smoke. It's the answer to vapor. Our lives end in death. Jesus died in our place and rose again so that all who trust in him would have eternal life. I'm gonna put all my cards on the table this morning and tell you that the answer to the biggest question of, in Ecclesiastes, the biggest question in life is Jesus. 
Jesus, the Son of God, taking on flesh, born in Bethlehem, living a perfect life, dying as a substitute for us, paying our sin debt on the cross, rising again in the resurrection, sitting now exalted at the right hand of God the Father, coming again soon to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is the answer to the breath of life. He is the answer to the greatest question in Ecclesiastes. All of life under the sun is vanity. It is a mere breath. It is smoke here for a bit and real and noticeable and significant and given to us by God. It is significant while it is and then it is not. Into that, Jesus came to bring eternal life. And so as believers, we do not invest our hope and our ultimate significance into this life under the sun. We invest our hope and our faith and our ultimate significance into Christ who lives forever. And in him, we live forever. I wonder, can a midlife crisis be good for us? I mean, experience teaches us that for men, it usually isn't a good thing, right? Not if it's not handled well. Often a man will take assessment of his life and see the vanity and be discouraged and not see any hope in that vanity. And so then make drastic and hurtful decisions, resolving to live the rest of their lives. And here's the big tragedy of it all, investing in more vanity. They don't see the hope in that vanity. And so many make drastic and hurtful decisions. It's not helpful. But friend, it can be. Taking assessment can be helpful for you. Our little crisis can help us. The perspective of Ecclesiastes is golden. If I have been wasting my heart, my life, my affection, my ambition on smoke, and in that moment of reflection, God presses in on my heart the truth that I can see from Ecclesiastes and I stop investing in vanity and instead put my eyes on Jesus and make my resolve and my, set my heart to worship and live with the aim of my life on what is truly significant, then it's helpful. Then it's very good for me. And I think that is the purpose of Ecclesiastes and why we're going to spend this summer here. I want you to have a midlife crisis, even if you're 20. I want you to see this life as a breath and then set your heart and your mind and your love on what is forever. I think this is meant to humble us. I think this is meant to kill our love of the world and its vain passing pleasures. I think it's meant to fuel our resistance to sin, strengthen us in the moment of temptation. I think it is meant ultimately to lead us to Jesus Christ. You can spend your life kicking against the reality that this life is under the sun. You can spend your life kicking, pushing back on the truth that this is vanity. You can do that. You can live to make your mark, make a name for yourself, be remembered, make lots of money, enjoy a lot of pleasure. But friend, it is still life under the sun. The curse is still the curse. And until it is finally and fully overcome on the day of the Lord, this life under the sun will still be vanity. So Ecclesiastes teaches us that we should spend our lives or the rest of our lives 
knowing that this work of our hands is a mere breath so that we might fix our eyes and our hearts and our ambition on what is eternal so that we might fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. Oh, I pray that this little summer midlife crisis will be good for us, good for us as a church, good for you as a Christian. Your life is a breath. Jesus is forever. Heaven is forever. Let this sermon and this book and this preacher here from Ecclesiastes help you to fix your eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. And then we're going to remember what Christ has done for us in bringing us eternal life. Oh, Father, I pray that we would not be slow to hear the words of the preacher. I pray that the perplexing realities that we see in this book will drive us to put our eyes on what is so clear, the hope of Christ and the gospel. Lord, may we not dismiss quickly. May we, may we not be fools. Help us not to be fools. Fools with this life that you've given us. We want to steward it well for your glory. We don't want to spend it or invest it in smoke. So help us, Father, to listen. And may Christ be glorified in us. In Jesus' name, amen.